Well, thank you folks for being here. Um, quick preface, as I said uh, before a few of y'all came in, um, there is going to be like a supplemental guide that I'm going to make uh, after this. And so if you are like a furious note taker, if you're like, I need to write down everything that's on the slide, don't panic. Don't worry. You can see that when I send it out. So. Uh, we have a lot to cover, so please bear with me. If you have questions, you can inter you, you know raise your hand, interrupt me. It's fine, um, but we will. I will be able to maybe address questions at the end as well. So, Heavenly Father, uh, I ask that you would be with me now as I uh, try to teach uh, these brothers and sisters how to uh, rightly uh, handle and study your Word, and I pray that this would. Uh, um, pay dividends in their lives uh, going forward from here, Lord. So I desire to honor you in this, and we pray that you would uh, help us to understand and uh, not be overwhelmed by uh, what might be overwhelming to us. Um, and so we just come, be come before you in faith and ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Studying the Bible. What exactly... Specifically, are we talking about here? I know it can be a broad subject. It can seem kind of overwhelming, especially when you know it, you, you see a pastor do uh, you know, preach a sermon every Sunday, and you're like, I mean, I don't really understand how he's getting this at all, because it just kind of se seems like a mystery. I hope I can dispel some of that mystery today. So, we are specifically talking to, today about the methods and tools for studying the Bible. A.K.A. Bible study methods. That's just broadly the subject. Now, in academic settings, this is called the study of biblical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics might be a, a new word for you. I understand that, but we're going to add to our vocabulary today, hopefully. So, this is a fancy word. What is hermeneutics? Well, it is the area of study concerning the principles of interpreting a text. Any text. So this, this area of study applies to you know, any kind of written word you're looking at. And it's, it's something that we do all the time, anytime we read anything. Because we know, and we've been kind of doing this naturally as we've learned and we've learned how to read, because you don't handle every kind of thing you read the same way. You don't read a tweet like you would Tolstoy. And you don't read the craft dinner directions like you do a Shakespearean sonnet. Like, they're, they all being different kinds of written word, there is a different way of interpreting and understanding each of those different kinds of texts. Then, okay, if this is a general con uh, concept, what then is biblical hermeneutics? Well, this might blow your minds. It's the area of study concerning the principles of interpreting the Bible. Crazy, I know. But... There's a reason for this distinction, because the Bible is a special kind of book. It's not unlike anything else that's ever been written. It alone is God's word, and we, therefore, must treat it, read it, and interpret it accordingly. There are things about the Bible that make it unique as we come to it. So... This seems so intimidating. So what are we even aiming at here? Well, let's set a goal for ourselves here. Well, we're aiming at meaning. What does it mean? The goal of biblical hermeneutics is to understand what a biblical text means. Now, that may sound very self-explanatory. But an important, important and unfortunate question is how do we define meaning? 
Now, the reason that this question is so important is because in our day and age, things like meaning and absolute truth are non-existent in so many ways. So when we define meaning, we are trying to read the text distinctly from how many today would read it. And what I'm about to say might be one of the most controversial things I could possibly say this whole time. Meaning is the author's intent. That is not something that in any circles is taken for granted. Because in our day and age, when people come to a text, especially a religious text or you know a book or anything, it can just mean whatever I think it means. It just means how I res- what it, what it means is how I respond to it. But we don't live like that at all. Because if I say, "Hey, uh, I really enjoy pizza," Steve there can hear me and say, "He doesn't really like pizza. He actually what he really means is he likes mozzarella sticks." Like that doesn't make sense. I, as the author of those words, has the privilege, has the right to set forth what I mean by what I say, what I intended. And so, in our study of the Bible, we are aiming to understand the author's original intent for the original audience. Not just for us, but what he meant to say for the people that he originally wrote it to. So... Therefore, this is also really huge. The meaning of a text does not change, but the significance of a text does change. This is also something that, as we come to Scripture, becomes controversial, where people say all the time, for various reasons and with various kinds of arguments, that the Bible's meaning has changed over time. It has not, because when we understand meaning as the author's intent what the author intended to convey doesn't change. Now, based on context, based on circumstance, yeah, the significance of that text might change, but what the author intended is the same. So that brings us to this lovely question. Well, then how, if this is what we're doing, how the, how do we do this? This is, this seems, you know, I, 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 there's all these resources, all these books, Man, this is just a firestorm. Okay, let me try to simplify it first for you. There are three fundamental, overarching steps in Bible study. Observation, interpretation, application. Those are our three steps. Now, I have some warnings to issue. Before I even break down what what these three things are, Confusing these three steps, or the parts within them, is where many problems occur. Now, one, how this ends up normally wor- it works out, especially in like a, a sermon context or Bible study context, is people will say that the interpretation or the meaning of a text is an application. They will confuse those two things. But those are distinct You know, you have, when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
the general meaning is pretty straightforward. Okay, love the people who are your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pretty straightforward. But how you do that, what that ends up looking like, that is application. Now, this is really uh, difficult to spot sometimes, but this is where many problems occur, where people will take what might be a valid application, but when they say that it is the interpretation or the meaning of the text, they really do a major disservice and confuse a lot of people. So, the other way that ends up looking is that people will preach a text and apply it to the uh, circumstance of modern life and say, that's what the text means. No, 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 no. Because the text would apply to the original audience. So if you're saying that this is what it means now, that is an application. But they are, end up confusing and causing other problems where they say, no, that is what the text means. So, frequently Christians argue over what the Bible means. We have different interpretations of, of some things. You know, this goes back to uh, Matt's concentric circles, the primary, secondary, tertiary uh, doctrines of importance in the Christian life. And there are, in those different circles, there are different kinds of disagreements. But often, the fights that we end up picking, especially with one another, the things that we disagree with on tertiary things, what we're actually doing is arguing and disagreeing over an application of a text rather than the interpretation. Especially, we could even be agreeing on what the text means. And we don't even realize it because we're just disagreeing over what a valid application of that text is. So, to help us through those kinds of conversations is extremely important and helpful to determine if a subject of disagreement is owing to a disagreement over interpretation or application. It'll save you a, a lot of frustration. So, wait, three steps, that can't be it, can it? That seems way too simple. Well, it is simple, but it's also incredibly complex. There is no bottom to the rabbit hole of studying the Bible. And that's the thing that I love about studying scripture, is that there really is no bottom to the rabbit hole. When you think you've, you've done all you could to understand a text, there's always more to learn, always more to see, always more that God can reveal to you. So, now we're going to break these, what these three things are down. So, observation is examining the text to collect information. What are you observing as you read the passage, right? Then interpretation. This is analyzing the information to understand the author's intent. So now we're taking what we've collected and analyzing it. Application. Reflecting on the author's intent to determine an appropriate response. So within these steps are the many principles and tools that we utilize. Because, you know, you have one, two, three, three steps, but there's all sorts of points in between. So since meaning is the author's intent, that means our interpretation of a text is our attempt to accurately understand and represent the intent of the author. 
So remember, that's where we're aiming at. We're shooting our arrows and hopefully aiming at and close to the target that is the author's intent. So this means that in our study of a text, it will have one interpretation, but many applications. Now, this is also very significant. And you may also be thinking, uh, Chris, but there's all kinds of different interpretations that people have about different passages of the Bible. Well, yes, and over varying degrees of importance of doctrines, but they can't all be right. You know, if Aaron and I disagree on the interpretation of a passage, if it's, especially if it's a tertiary issue, that's fine. We can live with that disagreement. However, we each have one interpretation. I'm not saying, well, I, I can't agree with his and mine at the same time if they're different interpretations. But if I'm bringing forward an application from the same text that Aaron is bringing an application forward, they each might be valid applications from a, uh, from a passage. And we're going to kind of walk through and see some of these things play out because we're going we're to go through all these things. Any questions so far? Great. So... Here's a question I know you already are probably asking. How do I know if I got it right? If we're aiming at author's intents, how do I even know if I got close? Right? That's a fair question. I think a better question would be, how do I know if I got it wrong? Well, first, and as a hopefully exhale, being a member of a local church means that you never truly study the Bible alone. Because you have a community of Christians that you can discuss with about what you've learned. You're never, you know, on an island to yourself, just seeing what it means. You have other people that can confront you, can talk to you, can, you can bounce ideas back on. You have pastors over you to help you and assist you. Second, if you have arrived at an interpretation of a passage that contradicts a clear fundamental teaching found elsewhere in scripture, then you, you better keep studying. And one example of this would be, so if you're reading James chapter 2 and, and you read verse 24 and conclude that we're saved by works and faith, but you also know that passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9 teach that we're not saved by works, but faith alone, then clearly you've gone awry at some point when you're seeing those contradictions. Now, this being said, I want to bring out this uh, important distinction that there is a difference between contradiction and tension. The Bible is full of tension. Things that are hard to synthesize together. Things that are both true simultaneously, but we have to hold and we struggle sometimes to figure out how the pieces fit together. But we also know that inner circle of primary doctrine, we know that those fundamental truths are clear. So if you read a passage and you're confused and you think, well, I mean, this is saying that I'm saved by works. Wait a second. I know that I'm not. I know that Many other places in, in Scripture teach the contrary. So I need to work and continue reading and studying to figure out how these things fit together and what point this passage is making, even though it's hard to understand. 
Third, this is why we seek to utilize a proper method of interpretation that helps us to evaluate the study we've done. Guys, this is why we're here, to learn how to do this well. So I, I know, a method of what? Come on. So as we go through three steps of Bible study, we apply principles of, of a method that is both grammatical and historical. So grammatical, meaning that it's concer we're concerned about grammar. You know, if this is God's inerrant word. The words themselves are very important. We're concerned about sentence structure, the words and what they mean, and the literary genre. And historical, concerned with history and culture. Now, therefore, we must interpret scripture in accordance with its grammatical structure and its historical context. Now, what this means then is that being a student of grammar and history generally will be helpful for you. And I understand that grammar is not something that schools really teach well anymore. Um, but trust me, the better reader you become generally, it will pay major dividends for how you read the Bible. Like, if you don't know parts of speech and how language works, that would be a, it would really benefit you to learn some of those things. And I'll, and I'll kind of tease a few of those things out today. And same thing with history. If you're a student of history uh, and you know some things about uh, just the time in which the Bible was written and, and culture, sure, that also will be a help to you at times. So why, but why are these things so important? Why, is Grant, why, why does that matter? Because one of the most common ways we misinterpret and then misapply the Bible is by defining words and phrases as we understand their meaning and not by how the author meant them. You know, we, we may have heard tens of examples like this. Maybe like a, a very famous one would be when people like Oprah have a problem with like, uh, God is a jealous God. And they interpret jealousy as they understand it as their cultural concept of jealousy. We actually saw an example of this in our passage today. The word mystery. Mystery of godliness. When we read mystery, what do we think of? Scooby-Doo, Sherlock Holmes? You know, something that uh, is hidden and we can never figure out? That's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. A biblical, the biblical usage of the word mystery is something that was once hidden and is now revealed. So... It really matters to understand what definitions the authors are using for the words that they're using. And we understand those definitions by context, historical and grammatical. The author is the one who defines the words he uses. You know, like I said earlier, if I said, I really like pizza, and then Steve says, uh, by pizza he means mozzarella sticks. You know, they're, they have bread and cheese. It's like, uh, no, I, when I say pizza, I mean, like, pizza. You don't get to just redefine the word. But redefining the meanings of words is something that people are really into these days. I'm not, I'm not a big fan. So that means your interpretation of a passage must be three things. Something the author could have meant something the audience could have understood, at least in part, 
and something that makes sense given its grammatical and historical context. So if you're reading the book of Revelation, and you start, you know, or if you're reading, or you're hearing someone talk about the book of Revelation, and they're talking about Apache helicopters and, you know, brain ships, they lost the plot. Because that's not something the author could have meant. So what should we be aware of? So, more, more warnings here. Beware of allegorizing or spiritualizing the text. You know, being, being a very, re, it, it ultimately is, is, is a redefinition of what the author meant many times. It sounds like this. He said this, but what he really meant was. That is very common. Be careful. This is... Uh, this is important. Be careful not to read too much of the Old Test of the New Testament back into the Old when you're reading the Old Testament. Now, how this ends up looking is again that idea of when people skip interpretation and jump right to application. Like, uh, you know, you'll hear someone preaching on the Book of Jonah, and they're talking about Jesus before you ever get to what Jonah was actually how it would have been understood to the people who first read it. Because what you're ultimately saying is, until Jesus came, this book didn't mean anything. You couldn't understand what it meant until Jesus came. That's not true. The Old Testament was written for the people it was written to, to be understood and was understandable. Now, Jesus does alter the significance of the book of Jonah. And we will see later when we talk about application how we need to see how each passage in the Bible points us to Jesus, but we can't just read back our New Testament theology and understanding into something that came before it. Like, another example of this would be, you know, you're reading Daniel, and you're like, oh my gosh, the fourth guy in the furnace. It's Jesus. Well, don't be, don't be so quick to just jump to that conclusion. What would have the original audience understood by that fourth man? So, I'll read this out. First, understand how the passage would have been understood and obeyed by its original Old Testament audience. Then, understand how Jesus has changed the significance of the passage and how we as New Testament believers ought to understand and obey it. Similarly, be aware of how the passage you are studying fits into redemptive history. That might be a new word for you. So this idea of redemptive history broadly uh, means just God's story in history. What God's all about doing in this creation. And there are ma majorly four sections. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And now we are somewhere in between redemption and restoration. And so knowing where the passage that you're studying fits into that schema is very important. Now, this will become more specific because, you know, between fall and redemption, a lot of things happened, you know, most of history. So the more specific uh, you understand these things, you will be able to see where a text or book fits chronologically. Now, 
that doesn't mean that, you know, the Bible, for example, isn't organized chronologically, and it's organized by subject. So in your study of the Bible and doing research, you'll be able to see more of the order of Revelation, because it is important that you pay particular attention to what Revelation came before the passage you are studying. For example, if you're reading the book of Judges, it matters for you to have read Genesis through Deuteronomy, for example. So, now we're going to break down these steps here. We've talked a bit more broadly about what uh, some major concepts of Bible study. So here's maybe the more practical tools side of this conversation. So to remind y'all, observation is examining the text to collect information. So we're going to talk about the five W's. Count them five, and wool is not one of them, as much as I might want it to be. So, who wrote it? The author, you know, whoever that is. Uh, when was it written? And this is not just the year, but when it fits into biblical and redemptive history. That's actually more important than just the exact year. To whom was it written? The original audience. Why was it written? Purpose, very important. And in what style was it written? Text type and genre. And we'll get into that in a second. So, once again, you might be like, okay, well, how do I find any of this stuff out? Well, some of it's in your Bible, so you can read that. Um, but there are many resources out there, good resources. I know there's a lot, and it can be overwhelming. But there are study Bibles. There are books on Bible backgrounds. There are plenty of online resources these days, of course. So don't be afraid to ask your pastors or small group leaders to help you find good study resources. And I will, in the supplemental guide thing, include uh, some resources at the end to hopefully help you all out in the future. So moving on from here, text type and genre. Now, we're not talking about, you know, country or hip-hop or rock and roll here. Genre of literature. So understanding the text type and genre of a text affects how we read it and understand it, and what tools we use to study that. We talk, I mentioned this earlier. Where we, talk, we don't read you know, uh, the KD instructions like we do Shakespeare. You know, there is a difference to the genre of you know, literature we're reading. So there are three major text types. So these are like the overarching categories, and then genres fall below them more specifically. So major category and then sub subcategory. So you have narrative, which is a story. So you have history, which is primarily in the Old Testament, Old Testament history narrative. You have gospels, the, the different gospel stories and the parables are a kind of story. So you have poetry, psalms, songs, wisdom literature, proverbs, Job, prophecy. Most of the prophecy in the Bible is written in a poetical form. And then you have discourse, another word you might have not heard before. Discourse, pretty simple. It's just speech that's written down. So the letters are discourse, speeches, sermons, and also significantly laws. Now, the reason that I think talking about genre and text types in this way is that any given book will have multiple genres in it. You know, just Exodus, when we studied that, you have uh, narrative, Old Testament history, 
you have songs, poetry, you have lots of laws in there, that's discourse. All kinds of, of uh, and in, in the Gospels as well, you have the Gospel stories, parables, sermons of Jesus, all kinds of stuff. So, context, this is what Dylan was mentioning earlier. So there's different levels of context, and different kinds of context. So the, this first part, think of it like we're zooming out, like we're, we're starting with a magnifying glass, and we're zooming out to the, as large as we can. That's what we're thinking about here first. So you have the immediate context. So what immediately precedes and follows the passage. You know, you need to orient yourself. We don't want to pull things out of context. Pulling things out of context uh, is where you get uh, a lot of problems. Uh, for example, when you have, uh, you know, a cross-stitch pillow with, uh, if you just bow down and worship me, I will give you everything in the world. And, you know, if you look it up at Luke 4, it's Satan saying those words, you know. We don't want to uh, do that. <laughs> so immediate context is very important. Then you have section context. So just the larger section the passage is in within its book. Then you have book context. So that's just like the whole book. Then authorial context. So all of the books that are written by the same author. So when we look at uh, you know Exodus... We'll look, we'll, we're also, as we're broadening our view of context, looking at all that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Old Testament. Then biblical context. So that is connections across the whole Bible. And one of the ways that we do that is through, and one of the tools that I hope you guys can utilize in the future, it used to be called a concordance but before the advent of, you know, Internet. So when you go on a website like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible, you know, it's not too hard to see the connections between themes and words in the Bible, because you can just search love, and all the uses of the word love show up. That's what a concordance does. You actually have kind of, you know, smaller versions. If you look in the back of your Bible, especially if you have an ESV, you know, you can see in the back it broken down topically with references to those things. That's looking at how different ideas and concepts and words are used in different places in the Bible. And that's also really, really helpful when you're talking about author context, where, you know, it's like, okay, Chris said that the author gets to define the word he's using. So, you know, Paul uses the word salvation a lot. Well, what you can do is you can search salvation and then particularly look at all the, the uses of the word salvation specifically in Paul's letters. That's, that's pretty helpful. I use that all the time. Now... We have two more kinds of context to talk about. So we mentioned earlier historical and cultural context. So historical and cultural information that you can find within the text of the passage of your book. So that's internal context. Now there's internal and external context in, of, in, with, regarding his, history and culture. The internal context is more important than the external context. What is mentioned specifically in the passage is going to be more helpful because it's more relevant. It's right there. Because external historical context uh, is important. Like, it's very helpful. But Bible backgrounds, which is what that, you know, understanding the background, the cultural background of different things in the Bible, very helpful. But it can often be uh, a red herring. 
uh, uh, you know, a, a goose chase, where it becomes a distraction. It's helpful, it's good to know those things, but you can sort of just like do all this research and it doesn't actually end up helping you figure out a particular passage. Once again, not to say it's unimportant, but knowing how they function and what you're gonna be looking for more is, is a helpful thing to prioritize. Because the internal historical and cultural context will often explain the circumstances and facts related specifically to the author, the audience, or the characters in the story. But the external historical and cultural context is most often helpful in explaining features of the text understood by the original authors and audience, but not by us as contemporary research, uh, readers. Because, you know, if it's just mentioned, it's just like, oh, yes, and then we, uh, you know, stared at the sun for five minutes. It's like, why the heck did they do that? I don't understand. That didn't happen. You know, that's a silly example. But, yeah, if, if we're just kind of scratching our heads like, that doesn't make sense, clearly the author would have understood the, that the audience would have understood it. But because there's a long time between us and them, you know, we, we need to uh, research and understand, okay, how does, that, how does that actually function? So let's look at some examples of how this works out. So, for example, John 15, 12 through 17. The immediate context would be what immediate before and after. So John 15, 1 through 11, and 15, 18 through 27. Then you have the section context. So this larger section is what's, you know, uh, it's the Last Supper, sometimes called the Upper Room Discourse in John. So it's a huge section of the book of John between chapters 13 and 17. So that's the section context, the whole book being the Gospel of John. And then author's context, so all the things that John wrote. His Gospel, his three letters, and the book of Revelation. And then moving to a different example, I think what's actually interesting is the very beginning of First Timothy, what we're going through, it's very helpful in seeing these two kinds of internal and external historical cultural context because, you know, Nino started a sermon today talking about how Timothy is into pastoring in Ephesus. Well, how do, we, how do we know that he's doing that? Well, if we read the book, it started with, hey, I told you to remain in Ephesus, so stay there. That's verse 3 of the book. So that's internal context. We know that because we're reading it. And it's essential. Like, knowing that Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus is really important to understanding both the author and the author, the audience, and therefore the author's intent. Now, the verse right after, verse four, is a great example of external historical and cultural context because he mentions these myths and endless genealogies that are causing division. But what are they? What is this thing that they're arguing over? Now, once again, uh, you can understand the point that Paul is making without knowing those things. But it is a question worth asking. You know, when Matt uh, preached on this text, he talked about, he, uh, was it Judith? The book of Judith you read? Oh, uh, Jubilees. Jubilees, yeah. Yeah, you read, uh, you know, uh, an, an extra biblical source where that, you know, he, there, that was external historical cultural context that Matt drew off of. Okay, actually, questions, comments, concerns? Anything? Where are we at on time? Okay. We're doing okay. All right. We're making steady progress here. Oh man, I'm not gonna. We're not. I'm not gonna starve you today. All right. So, next observation tool: repetition. Massive, 
hugely important. Repetition highlights what the author's main idea is about. So, when we're looking for repetition, don't just look for the, for the same word repeated. You know, look for repeated concepts and themes. And we can see different examples of this. We'll look at Ephesians again. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We see four uses of the word peace in verses 14 through 17. That's a lot of the same word in a very short amount of time. So if you're reading it, you're like, okay, well, Paul's obviously making a point about Jews and Gentiles. Oh, there's this repetition here. He's making, he's saying some, the main idea has something to do with peace because he's repeating that word. Okay, that makes sense. Now, uh, in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, we see the words wisdom, revelation, knowledge, enlightened, and know all used in two verses. Now, what unites those words together? They all talk about thinking, cognition, what you know. So that means that as Paul's praying for the Ephesian church, he is concerned about what they need to know, what they need to grow and understand to know. Okay, I think this is our last observation tool. Connecting words, also monumentally huge. And another thing where it's like, kind of simple, but the more you grow to understand it, whew, man, it's, it's a game changer. Um, connecting words, also known as conjunctions, if you're a grammar nerd. Um, so connecting words link other words, phrases, and clauses together. They're a very, very helpful kind of word. So connecting words are helpful in tracing the flow of the author's argument especially in letters. You know, we, we see, like, we can read a passage and we're like, okay, how does this all, like, connect? How does it relate to itself? Connecting words are sort of like those mile markers that help you track along and stay on the road and see where the argument is going. So... What they do is they signal the relationship between the ideas that come before and after it. So that relationship can show cause and effect, can show contrast, result, or purpose. Like, um, I could say, I really like pizza. But the sentence completely changes when I add, but I'm lactose intolerant. That's not true, by the way. Uh, I very much so can eat pizza, in case you were wondering. Um, but that conjunction shows a contrast between, well, I really do like pizza, but in contrast to that, I, I'm lactose intolerant. So that means I'm not eating very often, right? So examples of connecting words. As you're reading... Through scripture. This is one of, as you're going, you're looking at a passage, you have like, you know, a paragraph that you're reading. Okay, let's look for repetition and let's look for all these connecting words that Chris talked about. So we got for, but, yet, so, that, as, if, since, so that, therefore, and because. These are just a few examples of, uh, and there are others, but these are kind of the most important ones. So before moving on, we got two more quick tips related to connecting words that 
They often begin at the beginning, of, uh, they often are found at the beginning of a sentence or after a comma. So just kind of, if you're just scanning along, you can have those places where your eyes go. Another one, for, often, when it begins a sentence, uh, it can often be replaced with because, which is helpful in sort of uh, uh, making clear to us this relationship of purpose. So, before moving on to interpretation, any questions about observation? Any, anything? Okay, cool. You know, I just want to make sure you're all, you know, tracking with me, you're not freaking out or anything. All right. Yeah, don't, I don't want anyone, I don't want anyone panicking before they leave. All right, do not panic. Um, Is that the first rule of Bible interpretation? There that was on the first slide. Yeah. Yeah. So, interpretation, to remind ourselves, analyzing the information, all that we have observed, to understand the author's intent. So, in interpretation, we're synthesizing. This is a step of synthesis. We're synthesizing our observations, particularly into a main idea sentence. So, a main idea sentence is not the same as summarizing what the passage is about. I'm not telling you to restate just you know, just summary. Now, that also means, yes, this is a complete sentence. If I ask you, what's the main idea of this passage, and you say, the Holy Spirit, like, no. That's the subject of the passage, but that's not what the passage's main idea is, because the author has a subject, and then he's saying something about the subject. So, what would we need to do first? We need to identify the subject of the text, then what the author is saying about that subject. So, crafting uh, main idea sentences, it's hard. It's one of the harder parts of this whole process. So don't be discouraged if you struggle with it. Understand, it's going to take practice and uh, hopefully have many years of studying the Bible ahead of you to get better at it. It takes time to develop these skills and tools. But one of, I, I do not think I could possibly overemphasize this point. One of the best ways to improve and to learn how to do this is to ask good interpretive questions. A major part of getting better at studying the Bible is learning how to ask good questions. Now, interpretive question, not the same as like an observation question, you know, those five, it's not, the, it's not what, you know, what is this passage about? Or um, what are the characters? Who are the characters? You know, it's, it's asking questions like that start with how or why. Why does the author say this specifically? Why does he use that illustration? Why does he make that comparison and not another? How do these things function together? Those are the kinds of questions that really start to unlock or get the, get the wheels turning about the relationships between ideas in a passage. So learning how to ask good questions. And one of the ways that you do this and you grow at, is you just write down all the questions you have. You know, this is something that I recognize isn't really intuitive for everybody. Uh, it's not, uh, it can be overwhelming sometimes. But if you're studying the Bible and you're like, I don't understand that, don't just let it go. Hunt it down. Write it down. If you're like, ah, I don't make any sense. 
don't don't leave it there. Have, like in the notebook that you're studying along with, write down every single thing, like every question you have about something you don't understand or you just need to learn more about. You might be like, oh, I kind of know like something of like, but let me let me write this down for later so I can look to look to research that and try to understand that better or ask a question at my small group about that question about that thing. You know, okay. So, crafting a main idea sentence. We're gonna we're gonna work on this together. So we have Ephesians six one through four. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, what's our subject? We have children and fathers in Christian households. That's So, the main idea is not just that. That's just the subject of the main idea. But what is being said about the subject? That children should obey their parents and fathers should teach their children about the Lord. So putting that together is our main idea sentence here. So, the main idea, Paul instructs that in Christian households, the parent-child relationship should be characterized by children obeying their parents and fathers teaching their children about the Lord. That's the main idea. Now, I hope that even just seeing that, that it's like, oh, I, maybe you're starting to see some, like how, where I got that, how I saw that. And it's demystifying some of what you may have thought was impossible for you to do. This is very doable for all of us. So, now to our last step of application. Application, reflecting on the author's intent to determine an appropriate response. So, recall now that a text has one interpretation, but will have many applications. And a major reason for this is that application is determined by context and circumstance. You know, when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, um, that's going to look different in Canada than it does in uh, Burma or China or uh, England. Where you, or even where you are in your life particularly. Well, what, like, okay, love my enemies. Well, my enemies aren't the Romans, so who are my enemies? How do I, who are the, these people that Jesus is calling me to love? Hmm. So, you applying that text is going to relate to your particular context and your particular cultural and historical situation. So, application, it often gets poo-pooed. It gets dismissed as being a bit broad or ill-defined subject because, you know, people can get pretty buck-wild about application sometimes, and um, it becomes very, a very interesting conversation. But it's an essential step of Bible study, just because... There is abuses to something doesn't mean that we get rid of it. So if you, but because it is essential, you if you haven't applied a text, then you haven't been obedient to it. You need to understand how you ought to obey something that the Bible says, and that's what application is all about. So the reason why we're talking about application questions is because the process of applying the text 
is really done by just asking good questions and answering them for yourself and for the people that you might be teaching. So, a simple step, though, to get started on that is just note what commands are being given in a passage. You know, what is the author explicitly telling his audience to do? You know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, I mean, he's just telling us to do that. So the application is going to be something out of that command. So if those commands apply to you, because, you know, in a story, just because there is a command, it's not being made to you, uh, seek to understand how to obey those commands. Now, this is the, uh, the next essential step of application, connecting to Jesus. So contrary to popular belief, again, uh, application is not only about what you need to do. An essential part is seeing how that text you're reading points to Jesus and the gospel. So sometimes this is more straightforward. Uh, you know, you have an Old Testament prophecy that is directly talking about the coming Messiah, and Jesus has fulfilled that prophecy in his coming. But oftentimes it's more challenging, or it's at least not straightforward. So if you're studying an Old Testament passage, for example, ask this question. Consider, consider how does Jesus and what he has done change the significance of this passage? And especially, how might a New Testament author quote this passage or allude to this passage? That's interesting. Like if you're reading about uh, Moses getting water out of the rock, hmm, using cross-references, using tools, in, you know, maybe even like uh, footnotes at the bottom of your, of your Bible. And this goes back to, even if you're reading the Old Testament, or the New Testament, and the author is alluding to, or even, to, especially if they're directly quoting an Old Testament passage, there's that little letter or number above that quotation that signals to a footnote at the bottom of the page. There's going to be a reference there. It's like, oh, it's really important for you to understand the context of, the, or of where that author is quoting that thing from and seeing the relationship between those things. So don't ask the question, where is Jesus in this text? Because Jesus isn't hiding behind every rock and in every nook and cranny of every story in the Old Testament. But ask instead, how does this text connect to the Gospel? Thematically, or in principle, or in sometimes more direct ways. So, how do the events, the characters, the themes, or ideas in this passage point me to Christ? So, I'm just going to list these out. These are some further questions for application. Maybe get, get the cogs turning a bit more on application. So, first, we already talked about this. How does this text point me to Jesus in the Gospel? What does this text teach me about God and His attributes? What does this text teach me about myself and others? How does this text challenge my thinking? What do I need to know? What is this text telling me to believe? Why do I struggle to believe it? How would my life and relationships be different if I believed what this text taught? What is this text commanding me to do? What would it look like for me to obey this text in my life? And what is hindering me from full obedience? Any questions?
about application? Anything? Okay. So, putting it, putting it all together, and this is where we'll, we'll finish today. So, very practically, uh, this is uh, a shortcut. The, the four R's Bible study method. Strap in, everybody. Get, we're getting practical here. All you need is a Bible, a pen, and a notebook. That's all you need. So, this, you may have heard that it's an acronym, or in some cases you may have heard it as SOAPs or something else. But, first, read. Read a portion of Scripture. Underline key verses that are, uh, or verses that are meaningful to you and what you read. Then reread and apply the other observation tools. Reword. You're going to rewrite those key verses that you've underlined in your own words in order to better understand them. And then afterwards, try crafting a main idea sentence. And reflect. So this is our application stage. Think about how this passage points us to Jesus and what it looks like to obey this passage in your life. And then, you know, consider the other application questions. Then respond. Write out a prayer, thanking God for what you have learned and asking for his help to obey. Lastly, ask God who he would want you to share uh, with about what you have learned and apply. So let's just look at a quick example of this, putting it all to work. So Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Reword. Don't do good deeds so that people notice them, because God will not reward you for a good deed done for that reason. Reflect. Jesus never did a good deed in a self-serving way. Unlike Jesus, when I do good deeds, I can do so hypocritically. I should obey the Father in order to gain heavenly rewards and not just the approval of others. Respond. Father, I don't want to practice my righteousness in this self-serving way. Help me to obey like Jesus, not just seeking the approval of others. Also, help me to share this today with my coworker who shared with me his frustrations about hypocrisy with me. Let this be an opportunity for me to talk to him about the gospel. Amen. So that's how you can use those four R's. Read, reword, reflect, and respond. Just make sure you just grab a pen and a notebook as you open your Bible. And the best way to get better on all this is obviously just doing it. And if you have any questions, and if you're concerned, if you have a lot more things that you're thinking about, I would be just jazzed to talk to you more about it. <coughs> and teach you more about studying the Bible or anything related to that or, you know, as you have other folks that you want to share this with. I'd be happy to discuss all that with you. So, yeah, I hope this was a benefit to you. Uh, if there are any questions you have, please, now's the time. Okay. Matt, any closing comments you want to make? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, dude. All right. Well, um, uh, once again, this week, I'll get a supplemental guide out to you guys. Somehow that will be disseminated to you. I'm not sure how yet. Probably your signal uh, or church center. But anyway. Um, all right. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit to help us understand it, Lord. Um, by your spirit, help us to not only read your word, but love your word, love reading it, love what it says, and that we would not only just read it and learn in, in, in that way, 
but that we would grow in Christ and that we would obey what your word says. Lord, I pray for all these, these people here that uh, they would just find so much greater joy as they come to the scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.